Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. We have quite a bit to cover this morning in our text, and uh, we are excited to do that. I am excited that every one of you are here. I know it was mentioned that many are at the beach or on vacation or wherever they are at, and I actually am glad that they're able to do that as well. Everybody needs some time away. Everybody needs some time to rest, but I'm glad this weekend was not the, the weekend that you were meant to go rest. So if you'll join me in standing, read Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Again, as a body, as a church this summer, we are memorizing Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. How is that going, by the way? Are you advancing in your memory of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? I hope so. We're at a good pace for you because we're only in verse 4. So you've had three weeks now to get two verses memorized, and I think you can do that. That's, that's doable. All right, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I'm going to read all the way through verse 14. Please follow along as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we come to you today asking you to give us eyes and ears to understand the truth of what your word says. I pray that you would give us clarity today, that you would give us a clear view of you and of who you are. You are God alone, worthy of all praise and all glory. We, God, were made for you, not you for us. And I pray that you would help us today to see this glorious truth, this anchoring truth, that you would cause us to go away being a people more secure today, more comforted today, more ready to face a world that seems to be in chaos. And I pray for those today who are here who cannot say with assurance that they are yours they don't know how they stand with you. I pray today that you would, you would cause them to see clearly what salvation is and who salvation is found in. That it is found in Jesus Christ, your Son, alone. Nothing else can save them. No one else can save them. 
Only Jesus Christ and what He has done by your will, according to your purposes. And I pray that they would find salvation in Christ today, that they would leave secure in that salvation. And we pray all of this for your glory, for your praise, in your name. Amen. Well, as I've said before, Ephesians 1, 3-14 is one glorious run-on sentence. I wonder what grade Paul would get in English if he produced such a sentence. Probably not a good one. But it is a glorious sentence and a sentence that is so important for us. As I said last week, this sentence and the truth that it contains will transform and change the way you think about everything, everything in your life, everything in this world. This is such an important verse, which is why we have given it to to us this uh, summer to memorize. Paul opens this run-on sentence with a summary of its content, which is what we looked at last week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. As we saw last week, This sentence uh, is a call, is an invitation to bless or praise God. It's a call to worship. That's what Paul's doing. He's calling us to worship and praise and give glory to God. We open every service on Sunday with a call to worship. Do you realize that? That's what we do at the beginning of every every service. We call you to worship. Why is that important? Well, every week as we commence our worship gatherings, our corporate gatherings, we have to remember, we need to be remembering why we are here and who we are. We forget often who we are and why we are here. It's our nature to have our awe, our praise of God dulled and our senses complacent towards the God of heaven and earth. We, we need to be called out of our stupor regularly. And this is how Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians, because he wants their attention. He wants their mind to be fixed appropriately. He's got a lot to tell them, wonderful truth to give them, and much practical application to give them in this letter. And he wants their attention to be fixed appropriately. Wants to draw their eyes up and fix their mind on the glories of the true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this effect is meant to be had on us as well. You see, what is true for these believers in Ephesus is also true for us today. We are one with these believers in Ephesus. We are a part of the same family. We're in need of the same grace. We're in need of the same reminder. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That is true for us this morning who have put our faith in Christ. We talked the first week about that little preposition, being in Christ, and discussed the nature of our union with Christ. We have been joined inseparably to Christ by faith. His life, both past and and present and future, is now our life. 
What a staggering reality. And that reality must begin to find its way into your daily consciousness. This is how you must begin to see yourself as being in Christ, joined inseparably to Christ. His life is now your life. If you are going to live, and this is why Paul does this, if you are going to live as God would have you live, it begins by understanding your union with Christ. Because we are in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This very moment, we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. These blessings are in heavenly places because they are secure in Christ, where He is, seated in the heavenlies. The location of our spiritual blessings from the Father given us in Christ signals their permanency. These realities are ours today, tomorrow, forever. Now this point... This point in our series, I've been purposefully ambiguous as it relates to the defining of these spiritual realities, these spiritual blessings. Because Paul is going to spend the rest of his sentence explaining to us the nature or the reality, the definition of these spiritual blessings. And so today we turn our attention to Paul's beginning to explain our spiritual blessings. As many sentences do, 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 you, do you revel in the glory of a well-crafted sentence? I know Amy Kim does. I'm not even looking at Amy Kim. I know she does. A well-crafted sentence. What a powerful thing. I'm terrible at it. I want to get better at it. But a well-crafted sentence, and, and, and so important to sentences are conjunctions. And as many sentences do, The sentence that Paul crafts for us turns here on a conjunction and he aims his intent, he aims his pen towards now defining for us these spiritual blessings that are ours, these spiritual realities that are ours in Christ. This is what he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. From eternity past, God has chosen a holy people to dwell with in all his glory. Hear that sentence again. Hear that statement again. From eternity past, God has chosen a holy people to dwell with in all his glory. Two spiritual realities that Paul gives us here in this one verse. Spiritual reality number one. Those who have believed upon Christ by faith, those who have believed upon Christ, were chosen by the Father to be in Christ before 
the foundation of the world. Those who have believed upon Christ were chosen by the Father to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. What does this mean? Here in this verse we have one of the seminal verses to what is called the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election. The biblical teaching regarding God's electing or choosing of His people. Those that will be saved. Now just to be clear, no one who considers himself a serious student of the Bible disagrees that the Bible teaches a doctrine of election. However, there is much disagreement on how to describe or define that reality of election. Most of the disagreement regarding this doctrine, this teaching of election, that God has chosen a people for himself, focuses on the issue of God's foreknowledge. His foreknowledge. Now, 1 Peter 1, 2 tells us this uh, specifically, that his election or his choosing of a people is based on his foreknowledge. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 2. To those, Peter's writing to a group of people, and he calls them the elect. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Integral to the doctrine of election is the scriptural teaching of God's foreknowledge. God makes his choice based on his foreknowing. So the question really revolves around this. What is implied in the Father's foreknowing? If you look at the word in English, foreknowledge, it seems easy to understand, right? His before knowledge. His knowledge beforehand. What God knows before. If you understand it this way, then it's like saying God knows the future. He knows beforehand what's going to happen. He, he knows the future. Now, this is important because this is how many, many in the Christian world want to read this passage and want to understand God's election. It is based on his ability to know the future. That God is able to see the future. And that he was able to see those in the future who would willingly, if given the opportunity, choose his son by faith. And based on their will to choose Christ, God the Father chooses them. His choice, therefore, his election, is based on his knowledge beforehand of man's choice. Are you following me so far? This is how many people view the doctrine of foreknowledge. That God is able to see the future. And that God looks down the, the corridors of time. He looks in the future and he sees all of those who would willingly choose his son by faith if given the opportunity. And so knowing who will choose his son by faith, he responds and reacts to their choosing by choosing them. 
That's how many people understand foreknowledge. Now, let's think about that approach for a second. What does that view of foreknowledge do to this passage? We f- see, first of all, and I want to draw your attention to the grammar of the passage. The word for chose here in Ephesians 1.4 is from the Greek word eklektos, to elect, to choose, to call, elect. Now this particular use is eklegomai. Now that doesn't mean anything to you. I know that. I tell Jeremy all the time, Greek, please, please ignore this analogy. Greek is like underwear, okay? You need it, but nobody wants to see it. That, that is, that is <laughs> truthfully, and, and, and so when I use Greek words, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to show you. I took a lot, of, I took like seven years worth of Greek in my life, okay? I'm not trying to impress you with that. All I'm trying to do is show you that there is, there is actually intent with the, the, the Paul's usage of the word here, okay? With Paul's usage of the word. Here, he uses the middle voice of eklektos, eklegomai, and, and by doing so, he communicates something. He communicates that this choice that God made was his own choice. He chose for himself, He was motivated by his own will. And that matches the rest of the passage. Did you hear as we read through the passage, it was according to the counsel of his own will. It was according to his own purposes, which he set forth in Christ. Over and over, this whole passage says it was his own will. It was his own purposes. Not the purposes of man. Not just seemingly that God is looking down through time and seeing how man is going to act and responding. This is not man's will. This is not man's purpose. This is God's purpose. So we see that the grammar does not support this view of foreknowledge. God chose for himself. Now, if that is not strong enough for you, then consider the context of the passage. As I just said, it talks all the way through about his will and his purposes. But, but think about the tone. We talked about this last week. What, what is the intent of Paul writing here? Is Paul not writing this passage to extol God? Is that not the heart of this passage? He wants to extol God in your heart and mind. Is this passage not about bringing praise to God for what he has done? What is this view that God chooses based on man's choice due to that intent. We see that according to the explanation above, man receives the credit and not God. God can see the future, but he is, this is important, he is bound to the will of man. God becomes a responder to man's good choice, which has all kinds of problems in itself. Is man able to choose good? Ultimately, God becomes a responder to man's good choice. Man's will is glorified. His action is glorified and not God's. This is blatantly against Scripture. Let me, let me read a couple of passages for you. And I've got a bunch of passages, but I'm going to read them fast. John 1, 12. Listen to this very familiar passage. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. 
Romans 9. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, he's talking to the Jewish people here, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older Esau will serve the younger, Jacob. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Roman says. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Truly, beloved, nothing less is at stake in this doctrine than the very place of God. Who will be God? We then have to ask, why would anybody have a view of foreknowledge that binds God's will to man's choice? Why would that be appealing to anyone? Well, there's a feeling that if God chooses some to be saved and does not choose others, that he is not fair or just. Have you ever heard that? Let's, let's be honest. Let's just be honest here. How many of us have struggled with that ourselves? You don't have to raise your hand, but hey, let's all raise our hand. Yeah. So, so we've all struggled with this. I, I can tell you there were years and years and years where this was such a struggle for me. Thanks be to God, he, he helped me through all that. He's helping many of you with this. But this is, this is such a glorious reality. So there's a feeling that if God chooses some to be saved and does not choose others, that he's not fair or just. But this type of argument ignores two realities. Listen, first, if fairness were the issue, God could be fair and just without saving anybody. God could be fair and just without saving anybody. No one deserves to be saved. God could be perfectly fair and just without saving a soul. So fairness is not the issue. The fact that he saves anybody is a demonstration of his great mercy. Then, secondly, there's the reality that God is the definer of fairness and justice. God doesn't answer to some higher court is what I'm saying. God is the court. He is the one that defines fairness and justice. When we start saying things like, well, God is not just if, then we in essence have made ourselves the determiner of fairness and justice. We have become the court and God must stand trial. We have put ourselves in the place of God. No, truthfully, he alone defines fairness. He alone defines justice. There is another feeling that if God chooses or elects those who are to be saved apart from man's choice, then man is not ultimately free. We are robots. Everything in the world just is a fatalistic mechanical determinism, everything's determined. 
Now, we do not have the time to fully answer this charge. There's a lot we don't have time for this morning, to be honest. We don't have time to fully answer this charge, but I want to I wanna get down to the crux of this. There's a lot of that web to untangle. But at the heart of it, at the heart of that argument and critique is a highest priority upon man's freedom. God must allow man his freedom or he has acted criminally. That's at the heart of that accusation. Now, tomorrow we are celebrating July 4th. We're Americans. We love freedom. And as living in the West, freedom to us is everything. True? This is how we think. This is the the air we breathe. This is the water we drink. We believe freedom is ultimate. Let me illustrate that. The idea of someone arranging our marriage is abhorrent. How How could a father and mother arrange for the marriage of their son or daughter? What a horrible thing. To us, that seems terrible, right? A lot of Disney cartoons are built on that. But is that ultimately the highest form of wrong done to somebody? We could go on to elaborate on that, but I'll tell you, I don't know anybody else suited better to help choose a spouse for their son or for their daughter than parents who love them and want what's best for them. I can't believe you would say such a thing. Listen, we have a high value on freedom, but there is something higher than man being free. There's a higher priority. You know what that is? That is God being glorified as God. That should be our highest priority. We were made for Him. We were made for His glory. But this is why it's abhorrent in our mind. We we value, we so value man's freedom that we cannot imagine a God who would limit our freedom. Now important to support that view is a distorted definition of God's relationship to the future, to time itself. And this is what's staggering to me about this, this view. Man is comfortable with this idea that God can see the future just as long as he has no control over it. We want God to be able to see the future. We just don't want him to control the future. We don't want him to ordain it. Now, if you stop and think about that position for a moment, that is craziness. It is ludicrous. Sure, God can see the future. But dear Christian, we don't want a God who can merely see the future. We we need a God who ordains it, who ordains everything. And that leads me to that question. Why would we want a God who can only see the future? Why would we not want a God who has ordained everything? Listen, every day we wake up 
And we interact with the world in real time. There are real decisions that have to be made. Moral choices to be considered. Actions to be initiated. Every day, I wake up in ministry, in formal ministry. There are interventions to be made. There are prayers to be offered. There's truth to be spoken. There is the word to be preached and proclaimed. And I have to interact, and you and I have to interact with the universe in real time. These are real choices. These are real responsibilities. However, and this is the wonderful, wonderful truth of it. However, God does not interact with the universe, with time, in the same way we do. And for this, we should be glad. How, how could I face another day if I didn't firmly believe that God has ordained all things in it? How could I minister to people if I didn't believe that God is sovereign? Do you see? I can speak his word knowing he is sovereign over the hearts of men. I mean, have you thought about that? We, we never pray according to man's freedom to choose. Right? We never pray for lost souls and say, well, God, please save them, but only if they really, really want it. It makes no sense. We pray for God to save men because we know he's sovereign over their hearts. We know he can open their eyes. He's sovereign. I can pray because I know God is sovereign over all. My prayers are heard by a sovereign God. How do you have children in this world and not believe in the sovereignty of God? Within the year... And the, the clock is ticking on this. Within the year, I'm going to put my first driver on the road. That's not something to be excited about. <laughs> She's excited. I'm not super excited. She can't even get around one time in Mario Kart. You know, it's like I'm going to put her on the road in a car that I bought for you. Come on. If, if I don't believe in the sovereignty of God, how can, how can I let my children go outside the door? God is sovereign. Every single moment of the day is ordained by God. Every tragedy of the day, God has ordained. Every moment. And, and to, to this, we are glad because we know our God does everything perfectly. Now, I, I know I don't understand everything He does. I don't see all of the parts of what He is doing. But you know what? That's because I'm creation. I'm limited. I'm finite. And I'm happy to live there as a limited creation. Not understanding everything that he ordains, but knowing he does. And knowing that he is good. And knowing that he is wise. And knowing that he is sovereign over every square inch of this universe. God is sovereign. He's God. And believe it or not, the thought that God ordains everything is so abhorrent to many that they would rather believe that God is going through time like we are. That God is experiencing life as we do. There's a lot to be said there. There's a view that many of you have been exposed to. This is why I mention it. The view is called open theism. 
This is the idea that God, he experiences time the way you and I do. But he's God, and so he can make a pretty good guess at what is going to happen because he's really wise. He can, he can see things and kind of predict and kind of know what's going to happen and plan accordingly. But he does not ordain the future. He reacts to it in many ways like we have to. And this makes some feel better about God. The problem is that it robs God of his sovereign rule over all creation from before time and to the end of time. So we see very clearly the grammar of the sentence does not support this view of foreknowledge. We see that this position also misses the context of the passage. It's about extolling God, not exalting man. We also see that this position creates a question around the sovereignty of God. You can call God sovereign, but do you really understand him to be sovereign? And isn't that the crux of the issue? Isn't that really the heart of it? Hasn't it always been the crux of the issue? Man wants to be the sovereign instead of God. Man wants to be God. Man is comfortable with a God, lowercase g, a God who looks and acts and chooses as man thinks he should. A God that can, that can be there to comfort us when we need him and pray to him. He can be perfectly explained, perfectly comprehended, and kept on the shelf of our hearts when we need him. Largely forget about him until we need him. And that's okay because he's all about you. He's there whenever you need him. And that's the way people view God. I think of the words in Job 38, the Lord spoke to Job when Job struggled with God's actions. The Lord said, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy? The Lord puts Job in his place and and we, we should listen and find ourselves in that same place. Who are we to question God? Do we want to? Psalm 115.4, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, for I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. This is our God. What a great comfort this is. Very quickly, I I want to answer the question. I spent all my time talking about a wrong view, what I believe to be a wrong view of the foreknowledge of God. So what is the right view? What does it mean that God foreknows? Perhaps Scripture itself can shed light on this term. First, if we consider the Old Testament. The word know in the Old Testament is translated from the word yada and is used to express relationship when it is referring to persons as opposed to things. See, 
when we talk about knowledge, when we talk about God's knowledge, when we're talking about knowing things, that is impersonal. When we're talking about knowing people, we get this. We talk about knowing a people or knowing people. This is personal relationship. You know about things, but knowing persons implies relationship. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Here the word, the concept of knowing, actually speaks to the sexual relationship, the intimate relationship of marriage. The knowing, the intimate relationship. Psalm 1, 5 and 6. Listen to this. The end of Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here we see that the word know does not simply mean to know something about the future. For if that was the case, does he not also know the way of the wicked? He knows both, if that's the way you want to use it. No, this use of knowing, right, speaks of a persevering, intimate relationship. God's knowledge of the righteous preserves them to the end, while the wicked perish, for God does not know them. Now, Amos 3.2, probably, probably the most important passage in the Old Testament on this concept. Amos 3.2. God is speaking to his people, Israel. Listen to what he says. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Here Yahweh is talking to Israel and warning them of his discipline for their sin. What's the basis of that discipline? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You're mine. It speaks again of a relationship that God has with the people of Israel. And in other words, I have known you is equated with you are my people. Now let's turn very quickly into the New Testament. The foreknowledge of God clearly connected again to intimate relationship. Romans 11 Paul is talking again of the Jewish people. He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So his foreknowledge speaks of his people and the relationship he has with his people. A foreknowing Those whom he foreknew is synonymous with his people. 1 Peter 1.20. This speaks of Christ being foreknown. Peter is talking again to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And he says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, is that, is that making the point that God knew about Jesus before the foundation of the world? That he, he just knew about Jesus? That would be silly. What does it mean that God foreknew him? 
communicating the unique position and relationship that the father had with the son before time. Therefore, when referencing God's foreknowledge, it is not speaking of God knowing a fact or a thing. It is speaking of God being an intimate relationship with someone or a people before they even have any awareness of him. And this is glorious. According to this foreknowledge, this foreknowing, God chose us before the foundation of the earth to be in Christ. Listen to the blessed words of John 6, where Jesus speaks of this foreknowing and this purpose of his Father. He says, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, Jesus says, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, how should this reality shape you? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, how should this shape you? Well, it should create in you a profound humility. Profound humility. There was no reason. And this is important for you to hear because, again, we drink and we, we take in, we breathe in this air that talks only about how important we are, but you must listen to this. There was no reason he chose you. Not based on anything that you've done or some merit that you had better than other people. It's not because other people are bad and you're just a little less bad. There is nothing that you can boast in to give him reason to choose you. It was by his sovereign will. This ought to create in us a profound humility. The doctrine of election should not cause us to be arrogant. It should cause us to be humble. It should also create in us an awe and a wonder. Why would God choose me? How unsearchable are the, the wisdom and plans of God? We should be in awe and wonder at what He's done. It should also create in us a life of thankfulness, a life that seeks to be to His praise. should create in us a deep mercy for others. We have received His mercy, not based on anything that we have done. If we look out in the world, and I was just talking to Ed before the service, we were talking about how sometimes, sometimes have you ever been in that situation where you step out into the world? Yesterday, I, I went to Winco yesterday. I stepped out into the world and I looked around me and thought, our world is crazy. So many people angry. There's so many people selfish. So many people struggling. So many people. 
And, and you, you look around, and, and if you're not careful, you begin to think, you know, I, you know, comparatively speaking, I'm not that bad. You walk downtown. Walk through the homeless camps. You might begin thinking, you, you, you know, I, I'm not the best, but I'm not that bad. No, we can't do that if we actually look to God's sovereign purposes in election. Because what we realize is the difference between me and the person on the street is nothing. I would be there to save for the grace of God. What grace it is. It should create in us a deep mercy for others. Not judgmentalism of others, but mercy. It should comfort us. This, this truth should comfort us. Indeed, this doctrine, as explained in the, in the Scriptures, this is important. This doctrine, as it is explained in the Scriptures, is always for the comfort of the elect. God shows us what He has done to comfort us to encourage us in our faith and in our perseverance. He will hold me fast. We sing that song. He will hold me fast. I look at myself and I realize how, I realize how weak I am and how frail I am, how fragile I am. I look at him and I, I realize he will hold me fast. I can't keep myself. I could never keep my hold. He will hold me fast. When trials come and temptations come, we look to this blessed doctrine of election, we realize God has us. And Jesus will not lose any that the Father has given him. He will keep us. I don't know what those who, who believe that it's based on their choice, I don't, know how they, I don't know how they live, honestly. Because if I'm the one who chooses to be saved, I'm the one that has to continue working to be saved. This is why many live in lack of assurance of their salvation and fear and anxiety. There are indeed many people who claim the sovereignty of God and can't let their children leave their house because they are so afraid of what might happen to them. It's meant also to spur on our proclamation. God is saving a people. God is saving his own. His word will not return void. And so we preach and we proclaim knowing that he's calling men to himself. We should also encourage our prayer. We pray to a God who is sovereign. We pray to a God who is in control. This is the blessed truth. I interact with time, my days, in real time. I make real choices, have real moral dilemmas. I have to make real actions and initiatives. And yet I know in all of those things, God is in control. He has ordained every step. You say, well, I can't understand how those two tensions live. Right. Because he's God. And we're not. I would rather submit to that truth than try to concoct some way to get God off the hook for not meeting my standards. Now, believe it or not, in the next seven minutes, I'm going to attack the last half of this verse. Even as he shows us in him before the foundation of the world, what is the purpose? This is spiritual reality number two. Spiritual reality number one, those who have believed upon Christ 
God the Father has chosen to be in Christ before the foundation of the world. Spiritual reality number two. The purpose of our election. The purpose of God's choosing is so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And as you see very clearly, several implications from this verse, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. First, as if we need a reminder, what we do. First, it was not holy and blameless people that He saved. He didn't save holy people. He didn't save blameless people. He did not choose us because we were holy and blameless. He chose us that were not holy and blameless to make us holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 25-27 beautifully describes this initiative and this work of Christ. In encouraging husbands, listen to this, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We see that Christ loves a people that are not holy. He chooses them. The Father chooses a bride for his Son. In eternity past. I I, I referenced arranged marriages before. This is an arranged marriage. He chooses a bride for his son. And it's not a beautiful bride. It's not not a desirable bride. No, he chooses an unlovely bride. And then through the work of his son, his son through his own work on the cross, his sacrifice, And through his own work of sanctification, he takes that bride and he cleanses her. And he makes her beautiful. He makes her holy and spotless. And who gets the glory for that? The Father does. Who gets the glory for that? Christ does. Colossians 1.22 speaks to the same reality. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is his intention, to make us holy and blameless. Second, we see that this holiness and blamelessness is real. It's real. He truly makes us holy and blameless. See, at the heart of this is this idea that, and many people have this idea, that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are different gods. Have you ever had that? Different gods. The God of the Old Testament will kill anyone that comes into his presence unclean, which is everyone, by the way. No one can come up upon the mountain. No one can even touch the Ark of the Covenant. Or they die. The God of the New Testament, on the other hand, is a God that accepts everyone as they are because he is a God of love. So God of the Old Testament destroying whole cities because of their wickedness, and the God of the New Testament snuggles up with sinners because he loves them so much. Now, 
course, this is a misunderstanding. The truth is, nothing has changed between the Testaments. Nothing has changed in the character and person of God. He is holy and righteous and just. And at no point will he compromise his holiness. At no point will he change who he is. At the same time, and hear this well, at the same time, this holy God's intention is to live in the midst of a people. From the very beginning, God has has desired to live in the midst of a people who will glorify him and worship him as God. He is holy and he wants to be near to man, living in their midst. People, he wants to live in the midst of a people that he can lavish his goodness upon and glorify himself. Here it tells us, in Ephesians 1, 4, Here this verse tells us that he has chosen a people in his son before the foundation of the world and his intention is to make that people holy and blameless before him in his presence, in his sight, under his holy and blameless eyes. We are found holy and blameless before him. And there you see the reality of what it means to be one with Christ. For if I look at myself, I say, I am not holy. I am not blameless. I can't stand in God's presence. But in Christ, we are truly holy. We are truly without blame. Because he has made us holy and blameless. His holiness and blamelessness is part of those spiritual blessings we have been given in Christ. He has made you holy. And we will live in God's presence with no shame and no distance. We are holy and we are destined for his holy presence. Romans 8.29 Listen. For those whom he foreknew is that word again. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called He elected. And those he called, he justified. That is, declared righteous. He has made us righteous in Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you hear the finality? The tenses of these verbs used? This has already happened. Are you and I glorified yet? No, not yet. But in God's Dealing with time, it's already happened. It's already accomplished. We are glorified. Speaking to the fact that it is a sure thing. And this leads me to the third and final implication. Since we have been made holy and blameless in His sight, positionally in Christ, and since we are headed to a day where we will be holy and blameless in His presence, without distance, unashamed, He has made us holy, and that is our glorious future. Holiness, then, because this is a reality, this is our reality, we have been made holy positionally, and we are headed to our holy future. Because this is our reality, holiness between those two posts, holiness should matter to us today. There are many who ask the question, how do I know that I'm elect? 
How do I know if God has chosen me for salvation? The first response to that is simply, stop overthinking it. It's, it's a very simple question. What is your response to the gospel? Have you responded in faith to what has been declared in the gospel? That Christ has come and taken man's sin upon himself and exchanged for your sin his righteousness. Do you get the exchange of that? He takes your sin and he gives you his righteousness. What an, what an exchange. He has died on the cross for your sin. He has risen again and defeated your sin. And he stands victorious in the heavenlies, offering salvation to any who will believe by faith in his finished work. As their only way of salvation. So the first, the first response is, well, what's your response to the gospel? Well, I, I, just, I just don't know if I can believe that. Well, then I, I just don't know whether you're elect or not. If you say, well, well, I do respond, I, I do believe. You can't believe unless God gives you that ability. That, that's the simple answer. But, there, but there's another answer that I think helps us. <clears throat> the second question I would ask you, if you say, well, how do I know all my life? The first question would be, how have you responded to the gospel? The second question is this. And hear, hear this well. Are you concerned about holiness in your daily life? Are you concerned for holiness in your daily life? I'm not asking, are you holy? Because none of us are. I'm asking, are you concerned with holiness in your daily life? You see, he has chosen us to be saved so that we will be holy before him. He has made us holy and we are going to a future where we will be holy in his presence. Would it not make sense that between those two posts, today and that future day, the people that he has saved for holiness would be concerned about holiness. And this is truly the mark of someone who has been converted. There is a desire, there is a concern for growing in holiness. And this is why we are so stern. This is why we are so serious about those who profess Christ and yet want to remain in their sin. This does not match the scriptural description of what it looks like to be his people. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hebrews 12 says, Strive. He's talking to Christians. He says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, to what end? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. You took the sin that stained me. You cleansed me, made me new. Of old you have ordained me that I should live in you. Unless your grace had called me and taught my opening mind, the world would have enthralled me. 
the heavenly glories blind. My heart knows none above you. For your rich grace I thirst. You know that if I love you, you must have loved me first. Unless your spirit claimed me, I'd still be bound in sin. Yet Christ alone has saved me and now I'm found in him. And when I stand in glory and faith gives way to sight, your joy will crown the chosen and everlasting light. For Christ my all, my great reward, adorns my life forevermore. Nothing can change now. Who I am, I'm in Christ, the hope of man. I'm in Christ, the hope of man. Father, we thank You for this glorious, wonderful truth, this sustaining truth, that before the foundation of the world, You have chose Your people in Christ. We do not pretend to completely understand it or comprehend it, but we confess its truth. We know it to be true. We know that you are God and you do all things right. We know that you are God. You are infinite in your goodness, in your wisdom, in your power. You're sovereign over every square inch of all that is made. And we are staggered by the reality that you would choose us to be your people. Make us holy. In our daily lives, I pray that you would give us such a thirst and a desire for holiness because this is what you have done. You have made us holy and blameless in your sight. And we are headed one day to that holiness, that holy presence. And I pray that you would give us such a desire for holiness today that we would be marked off very clearly as your people. I pray for these realities to seep down into our consciousness. We pray now as we leave today. In your name we pray. Amen.